Okay, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4. Okay, now on your study sheet, by way of introduction here, last time in our study we took an extensive look at the... Wow, let's try it again. A look at what? You guys, I literally just prayed it. Are you not paying attention? Thank you. The rapture. I prayed it like 49 seconds ago. Really. Okay, we looked at the rapture. You might want to look back over those notes because it seems like maybe it didn't stick. The rapture. We will now continue with the details concerning what takes place after we are transported to heaven. This is the day that should motivate the decisions we make and cause us to step out in faith. Paul said, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What we're going to go over tonight, this is that day of which he spake. This is that day when Paul said, I know who I believe. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep, keep everything that I've committed to him against this day, the day that we're going to look at tonight. And this is the day your faith will be sight. There will be no more faith anymore at this point forward. It will be sight. This is heaven. This is heaven. So tonight's message is our first taste of heaven. Our first taste of heaven out of Revelation chapter 4. Uh, we'll go ahead and look at verses 1 through 3. We talked about verse 1 last week. This is the rapture of the church. And then verses 2 and 3 follow thereafter. So Revelation 4 verse 1. After this... I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat on the throne was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So the first thing we see that is the throne of God. When John gets transported into heaven, this is the rapture of the church. John's taken up to heaven. That door's open. He's called up with the voice of a trumpet. And we looked at that last time about how with, with the trumpet, God will call and the dead shall be raised. And then they which are alive will also be raised. He's called up and immediately the first thing he sees is a throne. This is the throne of of God. A throne of God is the very first thing that he sees. So on your paper, a throne is set and one sits on it in heaven. One sits on it in heaven. Notice that the form of the one that sat on the throne cannot be clearly distinguished or described. How, how John even words it. He that sat was like a jasper and a sardine stone. Like he doesn't even know how to describe what he's looking at, the person that he's looking at on that throne. Go ahead, keep your place in Revelation chapter 4 and turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel 1. Because Ezekiel also saw the throne of God. He wasn't transported into heaven, but it actually came down to him. It came down to him. 
And I think we're going to look at mm, most of this chapter here later. So, yep, we are. So we're not going to hit the beginning part. But right now, you'll see that Ezekiel also kind of had a hard time describing the person that he saw on this throne. So Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It says, and above the firmament, what is firmament? You guys know? What is firmament? Man, I'm glad I asked this. Kind of, yeah. Heaven. Heaven. And, and heaven in terms of space. Yes, the heaven above us. Yeah, okay. That's Genesis chapter 1. If you guys are unfamiliar, go ahead and dive in there. But firmament is heaven. See, I, the reason I asked is it always used to confuse me because I thought firmament, firm. It makes sense that it would be like the earth or something, ground. No, it's the opposite of that. It's space. So, the firmament. So, above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne and the appearance, uh, the appearance of a sapphire stone and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire about within, uh, where'd I go? From, uh, from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. So again, you notice he even really can't give this very good description of the person that's sitting on the throne, which totally makes sense. Because we're going to see this through a glorified body. We're going to see this through a mind that's, that's pure, a mind that, that doesn't take in sin. So to try and explain it to us is probably impossible. I imagine it would be impossible. So if you notice, whoever, the, the person that's sitting on this throne, you can't really describe them. Next, the word throne is actually mentioned 12 times in this chapter. In this chapter, which is more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. When we get to heaven, the very first thing, God makes it very clear, it's the throne, the throne, the throne, there's a throne, because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. And we're going to know that. We know it here and now. We're going to know it in a way that we've never known before, when we're actually standing face to face in front of him. Twelve times in this chapter that's really quite short, what is it, 11 verses, twelve times it shows up. Next, notice that there is a full rainbow of emerald around it. Ezekiel mentioned the same thing, that there was a rainbow associated with this throne. Just a reminder, rainbow. The rainbow is a covenant. Yes, a covenant between God and the earth. Up here on the screen, Genesis 9.13, the promise that God made, the covenant that he made after he, he flooded the earth, destroyed the earth, he said, I'll never do that again. I will never destroy the earth by water again. And then he said, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So this rainbow, it was patterned after what was at the throne of God. What was at the throne of God. And we'll get more into this uh, kind of a little bit as we move through. Next point, on your paper, the rainbow that we see here on earth, is only semi-circular uh, because on earth we only see the half of things. But notice when he goes to heaven, 
He sees the whole of things. Have you guys ever seen a full round rainbow? Yeah. How do you see it, Brooke? From above. above. It's the only way you can see a full rainbow. There's videos of them out there of like planes or drones or whatever that are flying and they pick up a rainbow and it is a complete full circle, but you can only see it from above the earth. When we're on the earth, we only see the half of things. Not only that, you notice this covenant that God gave, this this rainbow that, that surrounds the throne of God. When we're here, what gets in the way of us seeing that full rainbow? The world. The world is in the way, right? That's where it ends. You look over and you see it ends on the ground over here and the ground over here. It's funny how that works out, that the world gets in the way of us seeing the blessings, of us seeing the throne of God for what it is. You note, I just found this interesting. This really doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I thought I'd throw it in for fun. The Greek word for rainbow is the same word for iris. It's very interesting because with your iris in your eye, it's totally round, right? Around the pupil. But yet we look at a rainbow and we only see half of it, but yet that's where we get our word iris. So I just thought it was interesting that even its, its Greek root tells you that it's a full circle, not half of one. So next, back to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4, verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. So there are 24 elders round about the throne here. Around the throne there's 24 seats. There are 24, um, 24 elders that are there. These elders, they represent redeemed mankind. All of redeemed mankind. Has anybody else ever struggled with this? Why 24? Have you, have you come through this and you're thinking like, especially when you hit the book of Revelation, you're like, you're thinking biblical numerology, right? And you're running through the numbers that you know, right? Seven is the number of completion. I know that. Three is, is new life. Thirteen is rebellion. Twelve is the number of Israel. Ten is the number of the Gentiles. Four is the number of the earth. What is 24? It perplexed me, just so you know. <laughs> So it always bothered me, and I never understood it until this past week. So hopefully, if you've ever struggled with that, this will begin to make sense for you too. So these elders, they represent all of redeemed mankind. Go ahead, again, hold your place and turn to 1 Chronicles 24. 1 Chronicles 24. What we're going to find here in 1 Chronicles 24, this is the time of David, when King David was ruling and reigning over Israel. And at this time, there were 24 divisions of priestly families when David distributed the priesthood out. Right? There were so many sons of Aaron. Now so much time had passed. Where it came down to, when David did this, there were 24 families. There were 24 divisions through the priesthood. So 1 Chronicles 24, look at verses 1 through 3. 
It says, Now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore Eleazar and Ithamar executed the priest's office. And David distributed them, both Zadok and the sons of Eleazar, and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar, according to their to their offices in their service. Go ahead and jump down to verse 18. And so then it, he starts working through these divisions. Verse 18, it says, In the three, the three and twentieth to Deleah, and the four and twentieth to Maaziah. These were the orderings of them in their service to come into the house of the Lord according to their manner under Aaron their father and the Lord God of Israel had as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. So David made these 24 distinctions of that priestly office. So we have these 24 elders that show up. Move on to the next point. That's because these are representative, these 24 elders, they're representative of the whole priesthood. The whole priesthood. Not just the Old Testament priesthood, but also there's a New Testament priesthood, which is... The apostles started it. Yeah, all the church. The church as a whole. In 1 Peter 2, it says that we are a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, that's for sure. But he says that we are a royal priesthood, the body of believers today. So you have the Old Testament priesthood, and then you have the New Testament priesthood, which is us. So your next point, the Old Testament saints are represented uh, are represented by the 12 tribes of Israel, and the New Testament saints are represented by the 12 apostles. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 21. This becomes more evident as we get here to the end of the book. When we start comparing these things out, we start seeing things. Why 24? Because there's 12 that represent the old and 12 that represent the new. You have Old Testament saints there. You have... New Testament saints there. Revelation 21, verses 10 through 14. It says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. This would be the new Jerusalem that's coming down. This is after everything is said and done. Having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates. And at the twelve gates, twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Where God starts tying this together. And then verse 13, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So as we go back here, we see here you have 24 different people showing up. Just like we have 24 elders at the very beginning of the book, representing that entire priesthood, representing Old Testament saints, representing New Testament saints. We are standing there at the judgment seat of Christ. Next, these elders wear crowns. They wear crowns and are dressed in white Raiment. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 3. Revelation 3, verse 5. 
to the church in Sardis. He says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Go ahead and look in verse 18. To the Laodiceans, to us today, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. And we're not going to turn to the, to the one here in Revelation 19, but what that is, that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're talking about the marriage supper and how the bride hath made herself ready, and she's in white raiment. These are the people that are married to the bride. These 24 elders, that's what they're wearing. And they're wearing crowns. We're not going to get too much into the crowns now because that's going to play in later when we really look at the judgment seat of Christ. But just know that they're wearing them. And that's because they are a royal priesthood. I thought we were going to go there. Up on the screen, 1 Peter 2.9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of... <laughs> out of darkness woo, and into his marvelous light. You really lose the effect, right, of the power of the verse when you're choke. Okay, but we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Because we even see that in Revelation chapter 1. We find it throughout the book of Revelation. He hath made us what? Two things. It says in Revelation. Kings and priests. Kings, royal Priests, priesthood, royal priesthood, kind of a lot like, who was that guy we talked about like six months ago, seven months ago? Melchizedek. Wow, that was really funny. <laughs> yes, Melchizedek. Exactly, a royal priesthood, just like Melchizedek. Just like this random Melchizedek guy that shows up in the book of Genesis. We don't know anything about him. All we can do is glean from him what we see in Genesis and then what we read a little bit later in the Bible. But he was an odd guy because he was a king and a priest. That's not normal. That's not normal. You look at King David, right? The greatest king. Was he a priest? No. He couldn't be a priest. But he could be the king. Us, today, because of Christ, we're a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. So just another note here. The fact that the New Testament saints are, are represented here in Revelation chapter 4 just gives further evidence of a pre-tribulation rapture which is what we talked about a few weeks ago, though nobody remembers. That is what we talked about a few weeks ago. So, this is just another one of those things. Like I, when I was talking to Aaron, I said, man, God just... When you study stuff like that, you kind of shelf it. You feel like you've got it handled. And then you keep studying and you're like, boom, other things just start popping up. that you did. You're not even looking for it and God just starts putting more and more pieces together for it. So, this is another one of those things right now that... The fact that they are there, the fact that they are represented, shows us that, they are, that there is a pre-tribulation rapture. Next. Let's go ahead and look at Revelation 4, verse 5. Revelation 4, 5. This throne. We're just going to read the beginning. It says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Lightnings, thunderings, and voices proceed from the throne. That's because this throne... This is not the throne of mercy. This is the throne of judgment right now. This is the throne of judgment. Because what we're looking at is the judgment seat of Christ. And it's very similar to what Israel saw back when they were in the wilderness and Moses went up on Mount Sinai 
And that was the God of judgment that was up on there. So just like here, with lightnings, thunderings, and voices proceeding from the throne, Exodus 20, 18 and 19, it says, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet, which a trumpet is also what? The voice of God. Right? We will be called out with a trumpet. That's what John said in Revelation 4.1. He heard a voice as a trumpet saying, Come up hither. This is the voice of God. Just like it says here in Revelation 4 with thunderings, lightnings, and voices. Here they heard a trumpet. And the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. Because they knew this is not God's mercy showing up here right now. It says, And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. It's a very similar scene that we're seeing here at this judgment seat of Christ. Next, keep going in Revelation 4, verse 5. Revelation 4, 5. It says, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. These, there are seven lamps right here before the throne. They're the seven spirits of God. Here's another fun little interesting one. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Who's that? Jesus, thank you. And the Spirit of the Lord right, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of of the Lord. You have here this sevenfold spirit, and we read in Revelation chapter 4 of these seven lamps of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. It says, And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Speaking of Jesus, we were given in the Old Testament this sevenfold attribute, these seven spirits of God. Found in Isaiah. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Next, Revelation 4, verse 6. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Like unto crystal. So in the... Uh, where'd I go? There's a sea of glass. Sea of glass in heaven. When we're standing there, when we're before that throne, there is a sea of of glass. We're going to go on a little journey. Go ahead and turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Always be holding your place in Revelation. We will continue to go back there. There's a sea of glass. Genesis 1, verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be a firmament, which is... Good job, guys. In the midst of the waters... And let it divide the waters from the waters. Firmament is heaven. And God said, let's put a firmament in the midst of the waters and divide the waters from the waters. If you've never laid any thought to this, think about this. Right? We're not going to dive into the gap tonight. But begin thinking about this. Why was the universe filled with water? And we're going to find later that it's frozen. Why? Just think about it. We're not diving down that rabbit hole tonight. But God had to put a firmament, a heaven, a space in between water and water. Does that happen here on earth? That there's heaven in between the water and the water? 
No. Remember, it hadn't rained yet here at this time. So no. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. What we're beginning to see is the beginning of the formation of this sea of glass. God had to separate the water from the water. So we have water that's under the firmament. That's here on earth. Then we have water that's above the firmament. What happened to that water? It became a sea of glass. Turn to Psalm 148. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 4. You guys ever flip like back and forth past the chapter you're looking for? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you just did it three times? Yep. Good. Not good, but like, I'm not alone. <laughs> Psalm 148, verses 1 through 4. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise ye Him, all His angels. Praise ye Him, all His hosts. Praise ye Him. Sun and moon, praise Him. All ye stars of light, praise Him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Plural. Again, we really can't get into the gap, but man, if you understood it, this would really begin making a lot more sense. That there's, that there's water, not just above heaven or our atmosphere, but above heavens the second heaven, which would be outer space. Because then we know of that third heaven, which is where this throne is, where we're transported at that day of the rapture. But it says that there's water above the heavens, plural. So not just above our atmosphere. Next, turn to Job 38. The sea of glass. Job 38, verses 8 through 11. At this point, this is where, in the book of Job, God steps in and God starts rebuking Job. So what you're about to read, this is the Lord speaking right to Job at this time. Verses 8 through 11. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof and thick darkness a swaddling band for it and break up for it my, my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here thy, thy proud waves shall be stayed. Again, he's talking about these waters, this sea that has doors, which we just read in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, that a door in heaven opened, and a voice said, Come up. He's saying this sea that's up above, that has doors and bars. Sounds a whole lot like where God is. But there's this sea that's blocking it off that you can't get in unless the door is open. Now go ahead and... Uh, oh, sorry, look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. It says, And the waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. And this is exactly what he's talking about when he talks about the deep. It's this sea of glass. That sea of glass is frozen water that is above our atmosphere, that is above outer space, and it is what is blocking us from Him. 
So it's blocking everything else from God the Father in the third heaven. It's a frozen sea of glass that God used after he had to judge the world once because of the rebellion of the devil and his angels. And then when God decided it's time, it's time, I'm going to do something new, he had to divide those waters out so he could have this place ready to go for mankind. Now go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, verse 2. John says, And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So again, the sea of glass, it's still there. This is in the midst of this tribulation time. And those that are overcoming that Antichrist, overcoming the devil but they've been martyred. They're there. And they're standing on that sea of glass also. Now go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 21. Verse 1. He says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. This is after the earth has been totally renovated by fire. It's been done away with. And God brings down a new heaven, a new earth, where we read a little bit of new Jerusalem coming down to be on new earth. New heaven and new earth, the older passed away, and he says, and there was no more sea. The sea of glass is gone. There is no longer a division between God and his redeemed people. There is no more division between God and the nation of Israel. No more. It's done away. It's something that's often very I think, confusing to people. They don't understand the sea of glass. What is this? It's an ice barrier that God used when He separated the waters from the waters after His, ju His first judgment. He separated them out and He used that as a barrier between Himself and the unredeemed creation underneath it. That was the barrier He used. It's very interesting if you look in your King James Bible. It's Genesis 1.1. Yes. And I'll say it louder so everyone can hear it. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Not the heavens. The heaven. And then by the time you get to chapter 2, he says, Thus were the heavens and the earth finished. What happened? There was one heaven. Why are there more than one now? Judgment. Division. A sea of glass has been put in there. Because something bad already happened. Next. Back to Revelation 4, verse 6. Sea of glass. Revelation 4, 6, the rest of the verse through verse 9. So again, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes uh, before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the thir third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. So we have these four beasts. In the midst of the throne there are four beasts. These beasts are cherubim. 
their cherubim. Really wish we had time to go there, but we don't. I told you we'd go back to Ezekiel 1, but we're not going to be able to go through that whole chapter. So, they accompany the throne of God wherever it appears. We see them here in heaven. Ezekiel saw them on earth as the throne came down to him. So these cherubim, that's their job. It's to go with the throne of God, to be with the throne of God. And again, we're not going to be able to turn there, but this is also seen not just through what we've read here in Ezekiel, not just through what we've read in Revelation chapter 4, but it's seen in the earthly tabernacle. You can look these things up. Exodus 25. If you guys remember, God, they had the, the Ark of the Covenant, and God told them exactly how to do all that, and then He said to make a mercy seat, and then there would be two cherubim, because it's patterned after the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, as it were. Up here on the screen, Hebrews 9, he said, in verses 21 and 23, it says, Moreover, he sprinkled it with blood, speaking of Moses, uh, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. He said, It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, speaking of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not the blood of bulls, not the blood of goats, but he said it's a pattern. What God showed Moses, it was a pattern of the heavenly temple. And it needed purged with the blood of animals because Christ hadn't come yet. But when Christ did, what he did is he purified with a better sacrifice. With a better sacrifice. So these things are even seen in the heavenly tabernacle. And if you look, it says that they're cherubims that are, that are facing the mercy seat of God. Another interesting note, there are four beasts, which is the number of what? Earth. Earth. Good job. I know, but I also just said we looked at the rapture two weeks ago and then nobody remembered that. So, And this was a way bigger gap in between. And there was a lot more said. So, I'm proud of you. Four beasts, which is the number of the earth. These beasts, they seem to be interested in the restoration of the earth to its condition before the fall. They're very interested in this. It says that they are full of eyes within, signifying their intelligence and spiritual insight of things past, present, and future, the things that are yet to come. They have an insight because they're always around that throne of God. And it's interesting too, we can't, I wish we could look at it, but in Ezekiel and in Revelation, they're described as having the faces of a lion, a calf or an ox, a man, and an eagle. In the New Testament, what do they represent? What do those four things represent? Let's try it louder. Jesus, I heard it. You guys mumble. I'm, you know I played drums for like a decade and a half. I am deaf. You have to speak up. Jesus. They represent Jesus. And they show up. Notice the order here. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 7, the first beast was like unto a lion, second like a calf, which is an ox. The third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast like a flying eagle. This is the exact order that they show up in your Bible with the Gospels. First you have a lion. Lion is representative of a king, and that is how Matthew presents Jesus. Next you have the calf, or the ox, which is a servant animal, and that is exactly how the Gospel of Mark presents Jesus, as a servant. Then you have this beast that has the face of a man, which corresponds to a man, 
And that's what Luke represents. It shows the humanity, the manhood, that side of Jesus. And then finally you have the face of the eagle, which represents God, which is exactly how John's gospel presents Jesus. These four beasts even are representative of the facets, the characteristics of what made Jesus Jesus. Even these beasts around the throne signify of these things. And then in the Old Testament, and they're even in a different order in the Old Testament, they represent the 12 tribes of Israel as they marched and camped out in the wilderness. There was three tribes associated with each side of the camp. And basically, it looked like a giant marching cross through the wilderness. But what you had was Judah and two other tribes with him. And they were on the east, and they, uh, they were bearing a lion banner. They carried a banner that was a lion. Then Ephraim and the two tribes with him were on the west bearing an ox banner. And then you had Reuben's three tribes that were on the south bearing the, the banner of a man. And then Dan's three tribes were on the north bearing an eagle banner. And then interestingly enough, the tabernacle was in the center of all of it. And when we see this scene unfold in heaven, you have these four beasts, these same symbols, the same lion, ox, man, eagle around the throne, just as God's been doing all along with the nation of Israel. Very interesting. Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So these elders, they fall in worship before the throne. They cast their crowns and they proclaim, Thou art worthy, O Lord. As if to say, we are not worthy of these crowns. We are not worthy of this reward. But you are. You are. You created all things. And for your pleasure, they are created and they were created. It's all about you. That's how this chapter closes out. So now I want to jump back in and take a little closer look. Because we see in Revelation 4, 4, that round about the throne, four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. So what we have there, this is the judgment seat of Christ. It has taken place at this point. They've already been given their reward. The judgment seat of Christ is the judgment every believer will face after the rapture. Every believer will face this. You know, it was funny, as I was studying this out, I was thinking about this. Uh, there was a time Aaron and I, Aaron Stanley and I were, were uh, street preaching down in Canton. And that night, I, I decided I was, gonna, I was just going to preach on the, the judgment of God. So I, I preached the judgment, then I preached the good news, how Jesus died, and you don't have to face that judgment. And then I would go back to judgment, and then the good news, and judgment, and the good news. And as I'm in the middle of preaching judgment, some, I, I say, you will all be judged. And somebody goes, yeah, so will you. And I went, I know! But I'm going to face a very different judgment than they're going to face. Because if you don't know Christ, as your Lord and personal Savior. Do you guys know what that judgment's called? Thank you. The great white throne judgment. We're not going to look at it tonight. We are going to look at it in the future. But the great white throne judgment, that's for all those who heard the truth 
That's for all those who heard, yeah, I am a sinner. That's for all those who heard, yeah, I know Christ, Christ died for me because God's standard is perfection. And Christ died for me. And I just I have to call out to Him. I have to repent of my sins, change my mind, turn away from my sins, turn to Jesus Christ and make Him the Lord of my life. Ask Him to forgive me. Ask Him to save me. And most importantly, make Him the Lord. I need you to be my Lord. I've been doing things my own way. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I know I can't earn my way to you. And you've already paid the price on that cross when you died for my sins. Save me. Save me, Lord. When you've rejected that truth through your life, there is a judgment you will face and it's not this one. And it's the one where you stand before God and it says, from whose face the heaven and earth fled away and there was found no place for them. It will be terrifying. It will be terrifying. You literally will not be standing on ground. You will be suspended in space. It says the heaven and the earth flee away at that point. And it's just you and God. And it's at that point that He will cast you into eternal hellfire based on the deeds done in the flesh because you've rejected the free gift. However, here we will also face a judgment of the things done in the flesh but covered by that blood of Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you this, every person, every person knows that a judgment is coming. Everyone knows. It's, the Bible says that God wrote eternity in your heart. You know it. You know it. Yet we love our sin so much, we will not turn from it to God. We take the, the temporary pleasure, the temporary fulfillment that never lasts, ever. And we're willing to chuck our entire eternity because we think we've got to follow these rules and I don't want to do that. It's not the case. It's just not the case. This judgment is very different. This is the judgment that believers face. And you know what? It ought to be almost as scary, believer. Because we're going to stand and face that judgment for what we did after we got saved. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, oh, get right. Make it right tonight. We do not know what a day brings. So your next point, we will all stand at the judgment, or all stand before Christ and give a personal account. A personal account. Let's go ahead and look at Romans 14. Romans 14. And just know, the lost also will give a personal account. They will. The end of the book of Ecclesiastes, after Solomon talks about all the vanity of this world, all the things you could invest your time, your money, and your talents into in this world, everything that could make you feel good, a guy that did it all wrote that book. And at the very end of it all, when he says, I kept nothing from me that would bring me pleasure, at the end of the book, he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man because God will bring every secret thing into remembrance. And every idle word spoken in your life, you might think you don't remember it now, but you're going to remember it that day. And God will bring it back. And you will have to give account of why you rejected His Savior, why you rejected His free gift of grace. 
Likewise, believer, you might think you forget half the things you did. You're not going to on that day. You're not going to. It's easy when we, we know we've missed an opportunity. We know we should have spoke up and we didn't, or we should have done this, or we should have done that, and then we don't. And then a week later, a month later, a year later, it's, it's really, the memory's just gone. You don't, you don't really feel conviction about it anymore. You just keep going about your life. You won't that day. You will remember every single one of them. And we will all give that personal account. Romans 14, verses 7 through 12. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether, uh, whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. We will all give that personal account if we're Christ's. I think there's going to be a lot of shame at that judgment, but I'll still take that judgment over the one that's coming after it. Next, we will be judged according to our works after salvation. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 3. First Corinthians three, eleven through fifteen. For other foundation can no man lay than it than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. The day, this day. Revelation chapter 4, that judgment seat of Christ, that day is going to declare what type of work it was. It shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it was. And if any man's work abide, makes it through the fire, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward or a crown. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So I know we're thinking, man, the rapture, I can't wait for the rapture. Don't forget what's next. It's that day that ought to be that, that finish line that we're looking for, that finish line that says, what am I doing today that I'm going to have to answer for then? Because all of it, we're going to have to answer for all of it. You're saved. It says you will be saved, yet so is by fire. But you're going to suffer loss in that day, in that moment, at that time. What's that going to feel like? What's that like? I don't know. But it ought to motivate us in the here and now. We will suffer loss. 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5 through The Lord will bring everything to light. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But, what, uh, uh, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, 
and then shall every man have praise of God. That's what I'm talking about. You're not, you're not going to be able to forget things in that day. You're going to remember them. That's what Paul was saying. Men are judging me. I really don't care. What does that even matter? There is one that knows my heart better than I even know it. That's what he said when he says, I, I judge not mine own self even. Sometimes we can't even know our true motives because our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But God always does. He always knows the heart behind it. So, uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 11. Paul says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, <clears throat> we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. So we will be rewarded for the things that we've done in the body, whether it's good or whether it's bad, believer. And notice what it says next. After he talks about this judgment seat of Christ, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, judgment is the terror of the Lord. I think it's easy for us to think, well, we're God's children. Like when we get there, it's just going to be, oh, dad. And that, that will probably come later, but not until this happens first. And we, in our minds, skip past this because we only want to think about the Jesus that's ready to embrace us with a big hug and say, well done, son, let's go. Well done, daughter. But we forget that this judgment comes. He calls it the terror of the Lord. Do you know it? Do you know it? Because if you do, it will affect your days. It will affect your decisions. It will affect what you think about It'll affect what you say. It'll affect what you do. If you know that this day is a terror, and it should be scary, it's the God that literally spoke everything into existence. That's who you're going to stand before. He speaks, and matter exists. He speaks, and stars are there. And they stay there. Based on what He says, that's the God that's going to be there to judge. So next, the crowns that we may receive at this judgment, back to 1 Corinthians 9. Then you guys are done with your Bible drill. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. And this is what I'm talking about. This is that race. This is that striving. This is that finish line. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all. So everybody that's running in the race, they're all running, but one receiveth the prize. So run, that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for mastery is temperate in all things. Now they, these, these earthly races, these earthly masteries, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we, an incorruptible. These crowns that we're given, they're not corruptible. Because they're given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, not by men, not the work of men's hands. Not look at me, look how great I am. It's all about Him and His glory, which He deserves all of it. All of it. 
So there are crowns that we, will re that we can receive at the judgment. Just because there are crowns, know this, does not mean you will have one. There is no crown for getting saved, for calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. There is no crown for that. You may stand there and only suffer loss. I don't know. But just because they're there doesn't mean that you will necessarily get one. So the crowns that we may receive, may receive at this judgment. The first is the crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8 up on the screen. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. So that crown of righteousness, it's for those who love the appearing of Christ. But it's not just saying you love the appearance of Christ. you got to live like it. Because it's obvious whether or not you love His appearing. If you truly can't wait for it and you love it, it's obvious in the way you conduct yourself. It's obvious in the priorities that you have. In 1 Corinthians it says, If any man love God, the same is known of him. If you love God, it's known. You don't have to walk around telling people. You ever have people like tell you, like, oh, I'm a Christian. Don't you immediately feel like, mm, I'm not too sure about that. That's how I feel. Not because I'm better in any way, shape, or form. I, I hope that when I interact with people, they just sense that there's something different about me, that I don't have to tell them. And it's not because I'm great. It's because he moved in and he's great. That's why has nothing to do with me. This is just a shell. It's about Him. Those who love His appearing, they live like it. They don't have to tell you they're a Christian. I've even had somebody tell me, I'm a good Christian. Man, if you have to say that, I'm sorry, but you should second-guess yourself. If nobody can see that of you, you've got to ask yourself if it's true or if you're just deceiving yourself. So the crown of righteousness. Next, the crown of life. James 1.12 Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Also, Revelation 2.10, he says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of of life, this crown of life. This is for remaining faithful through the temptations of life or even martyrdom, if that's what it takes. It's also called the martyr's crown. This is for those who will be killed for not recanting their faith in the face of people that are willing to take their very lives. There's a crown for that. Next, the crown of rejoicing. On the screen, 1 Thessalonians 2, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. And He's talking to this body of believers in Thessalonica. You are the crown. He says the same thing to the church in Philippi. We're not going to look at Philippians 4, but that's that reference. And He talks about how that church is, is His crown. That's the crown He'll receive when He stands before Christ. And this crown, this crown of rejoicing, is for leading others to Christ and discipling them. Not just throwing the seed out, running away. It's, it's leading people to Christ. And then not just leaving them on their own, taking them into the Bible, walking them step by step through the way, showing them the basics of the faith, showing them. You know, there are things that you get saved, like, I, look, I just know my life is a disaster. I know I can't do it on my own anymore. I've just, 
Lord, save me. Please, save me. And you get saved. And then there are some very basic things that you don't yet know or understand. That's discipleship. That's somebody who comes alongside you and says, hey, look, now that, now that you're saved, here's some things from the Bible that you need to know, that you need to understand. Crown of rejoicing. And then finally, the crown of glory. 1 Peter 5, 2-4, he says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. This crown of glory, this is for godly leaders who lead God's people, also called the pastor's crown or the shepherd's crown, or the elder's crown. That's for those who are in in leadership, that are living a godly life, and they're trying to lead people in a godly way, and saying the things that are hard to say because they actually care about you. They're not hirelings that just want to make you feel good and get as much money out of you as they can. These are good godly leaders that receive a crown of glory when they stand at that judgment seat of Christ. These are the crowns. These are the crowns. How are we doing with those? Do we filter decisions through these? Especially, especially the crown of rejoicing. Does not the Bible say that there's rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner that repents? Literally, there's a party in heaven when one person repents of their sins and turns to Jesus Christ. Heaven is shaken by that. There's rejoicing. So to wrap this up, think about these things. I've made it personal because these are the things I've been thinking about. So when I say you, I mean me. I mean we. What will that day look like for you? What will that day look like for you? Will it be a day of joy and rejoicing or a day of loss? Will you even be at that day? Will you be there? Do you live each day with this judgment in view? This one. That this is where we're headed. You know, there was a a great preacher that once prayed, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Let me see things through that lens, the lens of eternity, the lens of the fact that I'm going to stand before you and be judged for the things that I've done. Don't let me see past that. Stamp that right in my face every day. Because this is the vision we must have, the run with patience, the race that is set before us. It's hard. It's a marathon. It's not always easy. But this is what we're pressing toward. We're pressing toward Jesus Christ, the one who left heaven confine himself to time, space, a human body, lived a life to show us that perfect way, to show us that we really couldn't even do it. And since we couldn't, he said, I'll take your penalty. I'll hang on that cross for you. I'll die for you. And not only that, I'm going to go in that grave and I'm coming back out because I'm going to defeat sin. I'm going to defeat hell. And I'm going to defeat the grave. And it has no more power over you if you will but call out to me, your Lord, the one that died for you. If you've done that, you will stand at this judgment. And if you haven't, 
be here when we go over the great white throne judgment because we're going to talk about what that day will be like. We pray with me. Father, you're so good. You're so gracious. We don't deserve any of this. We deserve nothing. We deserve hell on our best day. Because your standard is perfection and we can't live up to it. We can't. And instead of just destroying us, instead of wiping us out, instead of saying the first time we sinned, all right, you're done. I'm going to start over again. You said, I'm going to come down there. I'm going to live as one of them. And I'm going to take the punishment I should give them on me. Father, we all deserve to stand at the great white throne judgment. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ, for His shed blood, for that atonement. Father, may we never take it for granted. Never. The sacrifice that was made for us, may that motivate our sacrifice. That we wouldn't look at the world around us and, and think that we're doing more than this person or that person but that we would think, God died for me. That's my example of sacrifice. That's the mark I'm aiming for. Lord, I beg of you, burden us. Burden us with this heart. Let us see that judgment seat before our faces. And not that we do it to get crowns, but that we do it because you're worthy. Because holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are forever and so are we with you in your presence. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.